0: All right, we are in podcast number 35. We have Ken back with us. Ken hasn't been with us since podcast 15. We were going to try to get him on a little bit more, and uh, needless to say, 20 shows later, here he is. But they're small shows, so really, you haven't missed much, Ken. Well, I think I have. i try to catch up, but uh, you've been busy. Yes, we have both been fairly busy in this. So what we're going to chat about today is we're going to start a bit of a series here. We're going to try to interview people every once in a while on real-world rescues or recoveries or incidents, basically that they've done that have technical rescue involved in them. And that way, we can just get some lessons learned out there to the people that are listening. We can, uh, you know, share some ideas, get some feedback on stuff via our online platforms. And so this one here specifically is going to be a confined space incident that Ken and his team responded to. And from there, I'll turn it over to Ken. So, uh, Ken, why don't you just give us a little bit of the background of uh, how this came in?
1: Roger that. Thanks for having me back. Um, This goes back a number of years now. It's starting to feel dated. But uh, we're going back to January 2012 uh, was the first legit confined space slash technical rescue I responded to on the job. Um, the initial dispatch came in around 11.30 in the morning. Um, I can't remember what the nature of the call is, but it warranted a, a first alarm response from a um, an engine company, which at that time was a tower uh, with four staff aboard and a rescue with two staff aboard. And on arrival to the site, Uh, And speaking with uh, the on-site staff, there was a concern initially for atmospheric conditions based on what one of the witnesses had seen, and the fact that it was what the first in uh, Towers captain considered a confined space, which, of course, he was bang on the numbers, And uh, at that point, he realized it was a little bit outside of the engine company's response uh, guidelines and activated or asked for a a technical rescue upgrade or a second alarm technical rescue.
0: Okay, so you said a rescue responded with two people and a technical rescue upgrade. Could you just talk briefly for your department what the difference between those two units are? So our, our rescues typically run... Two staff, depending on manpower,
1: if we're lucky, we get three. Um, rescues traditionally were auto X capable um, vehicles. Uh, again, our department has kept their—always wanted to keep their rescues also to be able to fight fire. So they're actually engines, but staffed with two staff. Uh, main responses would be structure fire, second alarm assignments, or first alarm assignments as a RIP team— auto X entrapment sort of issues and medical calls. So the minute that technical rescue is ascertained as needed by the IC, they would request, um, the technical rescue response, which in our city deals with high angle rescue, uh, confined space rescue, uh, trench rescue, tower crane rescue. And, uh, we just do still water, uh, not basically stagnant ponds, rivers, that kind of stuff. Okay, not, nothing too swift as in swift water then? No, we've got none of that in our jurisdiction. So I'm sure if we did uh, have something like that, there's an adjoining jurisdiction we could mutual aid with.
0: Okay, so you said there's a tech rescue response. What does that entail? What does that look like
1: from your city? Our city splits the technical rescue team between two geographical locations um, one kind of central south of the city one north of the city Uh, one of the halls the main technical response hall would uh, they would basically cross staff a uh, a pod basically a row row roll on roll off pod which would contain all the trenching materials uh, some confined space and high angle equipment Um, so the rescue the two rescue staff, the captain and the firefighter would then move over to that pod and uh, respond with that with the engine. So a total of six out of that haul. And there is some first line um, access equipment on the engine as well, harnesses, uh, spec pack, that kind of gear. So the idea being that they can get on site, make that patient contact, initiate the rescue while they're waiting for the sister hall to show up with uh, their other two vehicles. So the other hall uh, would have a Quint, and it has got a technical rescue vehicle as well. It is also cross-staffed, so in the event of a technical rescue, two uh, staff off the back of that truck would pop over to the technical rescue vehicle and respond with the Quint for a total of, what have we got there, 10 technical uh, technical rescue technicians to that technical rescue uh, response. Manpower generally um, utilizing the first in engine crew, and if more is needed, obviously can special up units as we go. Um, Both units would respond to any of the technical rescue response uh, protocols in our city.
0: So, with the um, you said, another 10 coming on tech rescue plus the initial six, there you had 16 on site then upon arrival.
1: Yeah, if you throw a battalion chief, probably a duty chief or two in there. Should probably yeah. So 17, probably 16, 18. 18, 18,
0: Yeah. Okay, so carry on. Tech rescue arrived. What did you get? Um, our initial. Uh, what was the call? I'll, Let's start with that sorry, so people know. Like it was. I, this was a. It was. It was a weird
1: call, and I, I, I can't remember the nature uh, what the original classification of the call was. But on response to the. Initial call, one of the some of the determining or instances that kind of uh, led that first in captain to upgrade it to a technical rescue response was uh, two workers that arrived on site. It's a relatively remote site. Uh, It's not always staffed all the time, like different work hours. Um, It consisted of uh, basically a power grid with underground uh, vaults, concrete vaults uh, with switching stations, all that kind of stuff in it. And I guess as the first two workers arrived, they noticed a co worker's car parked in the staff parking, and they thought, oh, Johnny's at work already. And as they kind of went into the more secure side of the facility, they went into the control room and they noticed Johnny's workstation had a pile of his personal effects his wallet, his phone, his keys, his prox card, and a rather cryptic letter, um, something to the tunes of, you know, I'll see you when we're. Tiptoeing through the tulips uh, in the netherland or whatever something something didn't seem right and those guys had kind of looked out out of their windows of the building and they'd noticed that one of these vaults had a hatch open. So at that time ta- <clears throat> excuse me at that time, I guess um, one of the workers made the decision to go into the vault and uh, this is a underground space. I forget the dimensions but if you can imagine a space, 30, 40 feet by maybe 20 feet, but there was an, a secondary space within it that was accessed through uh, about a four by four foot hatchway. And it kind of went into a secondary vault. So I guess this guy had stuck his head in there looking for his buddy, got down. He has a four by four hatch going into the down into the space, probably about six to eight feet deep uh, ladder access. He crawled down to the bottom of the ladder and he noticed this opening, this three or four foot opening that went into the secondary space, had a sheet of plywood over it. And uh, at that point, I guess he exited or pushed on it. It was cocked in place uh, with some sort of ceiling. He tried to open it, couldn't push it open, exited the space. And uh, his partner uh, and him went and grabbed a, a fan, a ventilation fan and a sledgehammer at that time. And I guess they established ventilation in the space. They went back down into it, beat it open, and at that point took a peek in the space and could see another worker down at the end of the space. So based on that information, the first thing, uh, uh, engine company or tower captain uh, activated a 2nd alarm response for technical rescue. So that's kind of how it went into that mode from a, from a regular engine response. fire company response whatever you want to call it
0: now you also mentioned when we spoke about this a bit offline that the the two workers that attempted rescue uh saw something in the space that caused them pause and made them leave and leave without their buddy
1: yeah so when this uh plywood makeshift hatch fell inward um, one of the things they noticed when he stepped into the space was a purple uh probably four or five foot long by 12, 10, 12 inch diameter compressed air cylinder um, lying on the floor in there. And that uh, that, I guess one of the things that scared him initially was what what's in this thing. And typically uh, for people that work around power stations, uh, a lot of those large 25 uh, KV switches, I believe they they inert them with a chemical called sulfur hexafluoride. Um, and the reason they inert them is when these switches open and close, they want to reduce the arc flash or the potential for arc flash. So by inerting the inside of that switch, they don't have that. Um, it is non-toxic, but it is O2, de- uh, O2 deplacing. So I guess at that point they made the assumption that it was sulfur hexafluoride and uh, that kind of caused them to get beat feet out of there pretty quick. Um, one of the initial uh, confusion issues that happened between the phone call and the 911 dispatch was the relaying of what they thought the chemical was. And if I recall, initially, the chemical that dispatch thought they had heard, and I can't recall what it was, but when they looked it up in the uh, in the guide, was something that was extremely toxic. And I think at that point, they also had started to activate our
0: hazmat team to uh, to respond as well. Okay. Um, when the captain arrived on scene and started digging into the information with the workers and whatnot, uh, did they get any timing on how long this person had been missing or assumed into this space at this point? So my
1: recollection was the in the initial kind of intel gathering process, the Worker had swiped in when they looked at the access logs. The worker had swiped in I believe sometime on a Saturday morning, early afternoon, and of course we are now sitting. I think well, we were about thirteen thirty hours on Monday, so approximately forty eight hours prior. Um, whether he went in at that point is kind of hard to tell. So about uh, I think the the right away people started getting into that mindset that this is going to be switching from. A rescue mode to a recovery mode. And then I think that assumption and, and ascertain, or uh, that kind of became the IAP of that process was uh, let's put it into, let's think about this, let's slow things down and become turn it, you know, this is more likely going to be a recovery incident versus anything else.
0: Okay. Now, a couple of questions with that. Did, did you recall if the worker said, you know, Billy moved or Billy didn't move or Johnny, whoever we're labeling this individual in the space. Like did the the patient give any sign of life when they were in there? We get
1: into a very weird place with this because the conversation I had with the worker, um, because I was trying to get some of that information layout of the space, what's in the space, all that good stuff. Is there any documentation for the space schematics, all that good stuff. Um, in the conversation I had with him, He was very aware that he went into the space. He was very aware that it was not a smart move for him to go into the space and that he probably was doing things against policy at the time. So he was very guarded and about how many times he went into the space and what he was doing in the space at the time, which was kind of interesting because obviously his story changed two or three different times. I don't recall ever hearing him that he made his way down because he would have had to cover about 20, 25, 30 feet from that four, three by three foot access uh, through the horizontal plane down to the end where Buddy was uh, camped out, so to speak. So he made it sound like when you pushed, when he knocked the wall down or the door down or the piece of plywood, um, he stepped through it, noticed the compressed air cylinder, noticed the body at the end, yelled at him got no uh, discernible response from the patient, beat feet out of there. He did indicate that he had held his breath and, you know, went everything else that people say when they get caught entering a space they shouldn't be in. Okay.
0: Now, uh, the incident commander, I assumed, moved towards this as being a recovery operation. Was the IC technical rescue trained? And if he wasn't, was there an operations officer put in that was? On the arrival of uh, the uh, the first part,
1: if you want to call it that, we'll call it Part A of the technical rescue response, which would have been the nearest hall uh, technical rescue hall. Uh, the battalion was on site. Uh, the battalion had assumed the IC role. The I believe the first in uh, engine company or the company officer became safety. And then the uh, technical rescue captain, uh, station captain, became the uh, operations uh, IC or operations guy. So they did break it up uh, a little bit into those kind of categories. The battalion or the IC is not, was was not a, um, a technical rescue guy. Uh, I'm not, I believe he may have had some hazmat background, but uh, definitely not tech rescue. The tech rescue, uh, slash ops captain has probably, probably had about eight to 10 years in the, in the high angle compliance space program in our department. So, and then the crew uh, was a fairly experienced crew as well. Probably the most junior member, probably two to three years on the technical rescue teams and probably about six to seven years, eight years on the job.
0: Okay. Okay, so to recap, we've got about 17, 18 people on site. A battalion chief's taking command. The original um, and the tower company officer with four men running kind of as that first in engine was in safety role. The arriving technical rescue captain was the operations worker had gone in, seen their buddy. There was an unknown gas in a, you know, possibly in a, Uh, cylinder that was laying there and had a non-responsive patient somewhere 30-40 feet down this hole horizontally is that about right
1: sounds about right yeah down 68 feet
0: then over another 30 or so right on in a a secondary space in a secondary space okay so moving forward technical (laughs) rescue what did you guys set up and what did you guys look at
1: so my boss at that time kind of looked at me and said hey you know what, we're going to be, because we're in this recovery sort of mode versus rescue mode, um, things have kind of stepped down priority-wise. Um, my argument the entire time was, and this is something I always recall back from being a volunteer firefighter in the 90s there in an EMT in Washington State, was the body's not dead until it's warm and dead in an emergency room somewhere. You know, unless there's obvious, you know, the obvious decapitation, that kind of stuff. But um, so my mindset was and my argument was exactly that. Like, we're just writing this person off as unsalvageable when we really don't know. So I had convinced him, let me get a team dressed and ready to rock. And uh, let's keep arguing with the uh, or presenting a case, so to speak, to the uh, the command group as to why we need to go in. So at that time, I dressed two of, uh, two of my firefighters. Um, again, we didn't have a whole lot of intel on what was in the space. Um, I did know that we had a four or five foot by five, four or five foot hatch with a, you know, a, a, a mounted ladder going into the space. It was clean and dry from what I could see. Um, we have the team dressed in their standard FR coveralls, hoods, uh, attached to lifeline, uh, we did not go with hardline communications. Uh, we ended up using just our portable radios. Uh, what else?
0: Do you go on SAR, supplied air respirator, or SCBA? Or? No, we stuck. We stuck with SCBAs, and the reason we stuck with SCBAs,
1: we were just—they're easier to set up. We had no access issues going into space. We weren't concerned about that. We knew that the hatch going in was at least three or four feet foot square as well, based on the intel from the. Previous entrant, the workers. So, I had, okay. we had the two-person team basically sitting there, ready to ready to go.
0: So um, let's get into the weeds a bit: tripods and stuff. What were you guys? This was twenty twelve. What were you guys rigging back then, as far as rope systems? What kind of ropes were you using? Oh kind of, um, <laughs> I'm gonna make you scratch your head, uh, Ken. That's the whole job here. 20, well, yeah. Okay. So, um, the instructions
1: to the second team, or we'll call them the uh, team B, was to start rigging. Uh, for extrication should it be required um it kind of loosely made the recommendation that we set up a tripod uh, either set up a standard pre-built four to one to drop in the hole or more preferably a reef sort of ma to pop buddy out of the space uh the plan would have been um and again back then we're using 12 and a half mil rope um geez i can't even remember the manufacturer this orange square tube tripod that you could is the MSA 30, if it's an orange square T? Yeah, it might be. It's an oldie but a goodie. Um, yeah. And then just some standard, um, I believe, uh, those PMPs. Um, I can't remember the manufacturers of those either. But anyways, yeah, they basically decided on some anchor points. And we had the tripod sitting slightly offset from the hole, just ready to pop it on top if we needed it. And uh ready to go. And that team had that rigged up. And the plan was when we finally got the green light to enter the space, was the two would go in, they would uh, make access to the patient, um, determine, make come up with a quick plan of what we're gonna do. Is there something we need to treat in place or are we just gonna extricate? Um, as I recall, we did have one or two ambulances, ALS crew and BLS standing by and uh drag the patient underneath this access point, uh, tied, believe, uh, t- tied body harness into the system and up and out of the space. So that was our kind of rough IEP for the rescue part.
0: Okay. Why a tied body harness opposed to a sked?
1: Time, I think at that, again, if it, I think, and that was going to be part of that initial patient contact. If we were dealing with a recovery, a slightly different story. We can take our time, package correctly—not uh, correctly, but package the body yeah, a said. Little bit more respectful, full way. And uh, if the patient was salvageable, uh, the time getting them in and out of there would have been a lot quicker. I mean, chances are at this point, it was uh, you know based on again the intel from the uh, the, the the workers, uh, the cryptic note, um, what had gone on. This was an intentional. Um, this is a situation created by this individual for all intents and purposes, um, a a way to check out of this world. There's really no other way to kind of look at it. So, you know, if it was salvageable, it was going to be, Hey, let's get them out of here quick. If not, you know, we've got
0: time to deal with it. Right on. All right. So how did, uh, it play out from here? Did you guys end up going in? Did you, what did you wait for here? So we, um,
1: Yeah, the incident commander insisted they were kind of that it was going to be a recovery operation. He was concerned about the uh, compressed air. Um, We did get confirmation that it was actually nitrogen at the end of the day. I do not recall if it had been emptied or not. That wasn't something at our level or at that time it was even kind of ascertained. I believe the crew, when they did enter, finally did turn it off. So there was finally. A decision made to make an entry um, because it was a potential suicide. Uh, They also considered a crime scene. So we had the local law enforcement jockey in for some uh, jurisdiction on this as well. Um, Initially, I had a a law enforcement member tell me he was going into the space, at which point we kind of talked him out of that, given the fact that he had no confined space training, no uh, breathing apparatus or anything along those lines. Uh, Because it was still, like I said, considered a recovery. They were concerned about preservation of evidence. Um, The determination or the decision was made to equip the two team members that we had dressed with uh, digital cameras. And basically, picture down into the hatch, climb to the bottom of the hatch, 180 degree panoramic of the space, move ahead 10, 12 feet, panoramic, and move their way into and toward the patient. Um, stopping every 10 or 15 feet to shoot pictures as best as you can, just in case there was any uh, questions, evidence-wise, anything under the unusual, take a close-up picture, mark it. And uh, once the space was declared safe for human entry, then uh, forensics or whoever, whoever else had to go down there can would would go on and do that. So the two... Uh,
0: no, can me just intervene there, Ken? Yeah. Just let the listener out there... The reason the team wasn't going in is the incident commander was waiting for hazmat at this point because they were under the assumption based on the dispatch that this was a toxic substance that was being dealt with. So they're waiting for a yeah. hazmat team to clear the space before tech rescue went in. Correct. Okay. My, so argument, we my
1: argument there was basically, especially once it was actually determined that it was a nitrogen cylinder, um, my argument at that time was we're actively ventilating. We are monitoring the atmosphere with a gas monitor, a gas at the opening. We have a gas monitor for, the, for our team going in. We have a PPE control, i.e. SCBA, to take care of anything else in there. So as far as I was concerned, in my world, we've mitigated the hazard as much as we needed to.
0: Well, one uh, well, other thing you had a you had a civilian enter and get out of the space holding his c- exactly. Not, and, not. <laughs> yeah. and when, I mean we all know you know anybody
1: that teaches confined space stuff and they talk about rescuers going into spaces and and how many times in the interview of an actual rescuer that survived the incident, has says, "Well, you know, I hold my breath." Or you've got the one smartass in the classroom that says, "Well, I just hold my breath. I would go get my buddy." And you stop and you say, "Listen, man." Think about it. What does the human body naturally do just before it's about to perform something that's going to cause exertion? You can't stop yourself. You're going to take a breath. It wants to oxygenate as much as possible before it exerts. So, you know, when Buddy says, Yeah, I held my breath, I always laugh about it. So, and that was probably one of the biggest indicators that the atmosphere we were dealing with really wasn't going to be an issue. Um, the fact that Buddy had been in the space twice. How far he'd gone into the space, we don't really know. We can't really ascertain based on his, uh, his story. Um, but again, I think at that point, between ventilation a gas monitor, Lifeline, and SCBA, we've mitigated as much risk as we needed to mitigate to make the entry and at least figure out what we've got going on. Okay. So I don't believe we actually waited for HAZ. I believe
0: we finally got a green light from the IC to make an entry just because law enforcement was pushing to go in so they they ended up going in for crime scene preservation more than anything
1: right so okay. and, the, and the and the police never did actually make the entry we like i said we documented the whole thing uh, as the team progressed in toward the patient
0: okay so team goes in they're documenting as they go now let's carry on <laughs> um, yeah so the team got to the bottom of the space they confirmed that you know they dropped to the bottom of the
1: ladder and you know they had about five or six feet, and then they came up to a concrete wall and they verified that there was indeed three, four foot square opening. There was a plywood hatch, there was caulking that had sealed that shut. There was a cylinder in there. Uh, They confirmed that the cylinder was in the off position. Um, They entered into the secondary space. Uh, One of the team members had also brought in a tick thermal imaging camera. They ticked down to the end of the space they were able to see that the body down there was indeed uh, warm. Um, the they one of them entered down to the back. They did. Uh, they noticed as they got up to this person. There's probably a four inch foamy on the ground. Um, there was some prescription medication lying around. Uh, there's a bottle of vodka, mostly full. There was a five gallon bucket in the corner that he'd used uh, as a washroom. Uh, Buddy was lying. uh, Supine had his earbuds in uh, 2012. So old school iPod. uh, And this kind of comes up later, which is why I mention it. And uh, our guy reached out and kind of shook him and said, Hey, Hey, Hey. And his eyes opened up. And, um, our guy says, uh, you know, "quote unquote," I oh shit my pants because up to this point, the mindset has now been this is a recovery. I'm going to roll in here. I'm going to ascertain whether we have a DB or not, and uh, which I'm expecting, but unfortunately, well, fortunately, this guy was not dead.
0: okay that is always i mean total tangent i know you've had it too when you see someone and they look dead and then you go and they open their eyes it's always like yeah it's
1: kind of the little zombie thing going on there or something
0: yeah all right so they ascertain the vix alive what happens next so comms from in the space um i was at the opening kind of directing traffic um
1: no comms uh so The decision to use portable radios was probably, in retrospect, not the best one, uh, given the fact that we were in a concrete vault. Um, Given the size, though, it literally took about three and a half, four seconds for rescuer number two to come back to the hatch, uh, yell at me and go, hey, he's alive. And then I said, go help number one, drag the patient out, uh, at least to the access point. I turned to the, uh, team two and said, let's get the tripod set up over the space. He's alive. And it was one of those moments where things kind of slowed down. And it was interesting because uh, I mean, you're ex-military and a lot of ex-military or law enforcement guys will get that. You become very perceptive of things going on around you. And I distinctly remembered a whole bunch of heads all of a sudden in the command group slowly spinning around with a look on their face i was like oh and i think everybody there all of a sudden realized at the same time that we kind of maybe be made an assumption we maybe shouldn't have made so from that no big deal um tripod went over the space anchors attached uh, they dropped the uh, bottom end of the reeves into the into the system by that time rescuer and to had dragged the patient over he was not combative he was not very alert he um He just seemed really kind of chill. And whether that was the effects of the uh, pharmaceuticals he had on board or the combination of pharmaceuticals and and, uh, alcohol, I don't know. Um, They'd often, as we said earlier, on a tied body harness, um, we got that in place, clipped them into the system, uh, hauled them out of the space, kind of uh, basically dropped them right down onto a spine board. And uh, they whisked him off to uh, be evaluated by the paramedics. And the funny thing about the iPod was on the way out or in the transition from the tied body harness onto the spine board onto the gurney, buddy's iPod uh, somehow bounced off and lost his headphones. And the only really thing he had to say was, where's my, where's my music? I need my music. So from that, yeah, they took him, uh, whisked him away and did their thing. And yeah, who knows what uh, the end result was.
0: Yeah. Um, Incident thoughts, like lessons learned for people that are listening to this. You mentioned one about um, the radios in a concrete structure. Yeah, so a couple, I guess, a couple thoughts to
1: think about. Um, Starting right from the beginning, I guess. Um, Probably first and foremost is know your people know your people know where their strengths are and utilize those people to the best spot so put your subject matter experts in a position where they can best where they can best be an asset um typically in and i can't speak for other fire departments but typically a lot of a lot of things come down to where you sit in the system so Can a yellow hat or a firefighter, whether he's a five-year guy or a 20-year guy, make a tactical decision that's beneficial? Or does that have to be something that is done by a lieutenant at the time or a captain at the time? Like, where where, where do those decisions be made? And if it has to be someone with a red hat or a white hat, tap into that SME and, and maybe take some of that advice because they are the subject matter expert for a reason. So... Trusting your subject matter expert no matter what rank or status in a unit. Um, the other thing that comes into mind with this one, especially, is uh, a, a patient, a victim, is not unsalvageable until they're warm and dead in an ER. And you hear medics talk about that, you hear firefighters, you talk to rescue people talk about that, where, you know, depending on the environment they're in, we make an assumption that someone is a non salvageable patient when lo and behold the human body the human nature can be very very resilient and uh when we make that assumption we're uh, we're playing god and i don't you know that's something i don't think anybody wants on their conscience either um communications uh in retrospect we had the time to set up hardline comms uh, we had them uh it's probably no excuse why we didn't and i'll you know obviously own that. Uh, my, my mindset was trying to convince the IC group that we make creation an access and make a plan from there. So, setting up those hardline toms would have taken a little bit more time, but of course, in retrospect, we had the time. Um, I did get a little bit of flack why SCBA versus supplied air respirators. Um, again, we knew the size of the space, we knew the size of the secondary space. We knew that access was not going to be an issue based on schematics and first-person descriptions. Um, We were comfortable with myself and the two team members with the IEP being executable in the 30-minute, well, let's call it a 20-minute time allotment that a CBA model gave us. Um, There was no doubt that we couldn't locate this guy, drag him to the opening and get them out of that space. There was also, from a team perspective, very little concern about an atmospheric hazard. Uh, Again, based on the fact that there was an entrant in there, that we had monitoring going on, that we had ventilation going on. So the SCBA was light, easy to use, no worries. Um, As far as fall protection in the space, not really a worry, large opening, mounted ladder, um, not really anything too much to worry about there. So lots of uh, little things to learn. And again, I mean, that was probably like, for me, my very first uh, confined space rescue as far as the, you know, the job goes. And uh, I don't think it went off too poorly. Um, there's lots of things administrative. You You can always look back and go, how can we cut some corners or how can we be more efficient? I think as a fire department, we've learned to become a little bit more pro patient access, make a plan versus, hey, let's make a plan and then we'll figure out what our patient's doing and i think that's where that focus has to be it has to surround or it has to revolve around your patient what's the status of your patient make a plan and the rest all kind of follows in behind
0: okay i've got two questions for you just based on it you said a guy went in with a tick and that's a that's a unique thought i mean it's using a tool That's definitely useful in that scenario, but kind of outside of what the regular use of a tick would be when you think about it in the fire aspect. Is that something that's taught in your confined space rescue training or is that something that the lads on the back decided to do?
1: You know, that's a good question. And I do not recall who made the decision or the recommendation to take the tick into the space. I do know last night as I was on a night shift reviewing some of the notes from the call that I had forgotten completely that rescuer two had brought the tick into the space until I read that person's notes and had stated that once I got into the secondary space, I ticked the back end of it because it was obviously dark and 20, you know, 30 feet or so that way. And I was able to see the body and maybe it was determined early that if 48 hours, lying on the concrete. If this guy comes up cold, then, you know, it's, it's a pretty good sign that we're dealing with a DB versus a salvageable patient. So I think that did assist in the team. Number one, quick location. Number two, there's a good chance this person's salvageable.
0: Instant feedback. Uh, the other question I have for you, excuse me, RIT team. Did you put a RIT team into play when you sent the people in? If I recall, again, once team two had the tripod set up, we
1: had two secondary rescuers ready to roll should the need arise.
0: Yeah, I'm just trying to think. 2012, we would have been playing RIT in this part of the world by then, I almost paused. Yeah, now. well,
1: definitely for fire. And
0: I would have, I, I'm going to go with the assumption that
1: if, if I could recall correctly, I do recall two other people being dressed. Now, whether they were formally established as RIT or a secondary team to provide assistance, I. I don't recall because I kind of sat on the periphery of the, of the command group. Okay.
0: Easy enough. Uh, well, thank you very much for that. I mean, I think there's going to be people out there that can definitely have takeaways from that. Like the tick cameras is even a takeaway for me just in a chat with you. So I appreciate you coming back on board and doing that one for us. No problem. Anything else you want to add or are we going to sign it off? No, I think, um,
1: I think the interesting thing about this job has always been it never you never stop learning. So you know, something like that. If there's a takeaway from a call, even if it's a crappy call, it's you know, it's just another tool in the toolbox, something to think about. And if you think you've got no at all, then it's time for you to retire. Other than
0: yeah. that. <laughs> and on that. Be note, safe out there. <laughs> All righty. We'll talk to you later. Cheers, Mark.